Welcome everyone. My name is uh, Father Charles Truyols. I'm the director of the Catholic Information Center. I'm very happy to see all you, you know, all of you here in person today. We have had tons of events during this year um, live streamed, but uh, to have all of you here, it's a, it's a blessing. And it's this, this is going to be one of the few last events in person in the current Catholic Information Center because we are going to have renovations in the fall. So the whole CIC is going to be upgraded and it's going to be amazing. So in the meanwhile, when, while this happens in the fall, we will be using the second floor here in this building. So the CIC will still be in operation and um, in full swing. Anyway, I wanted to also let you know that we are going to have our um, gala the CIC Gala that we have every year on October Thursday, October 21st. We give an award every year, and this year we are giving the award to the president of the March for Life, Ginny Mancini. And then we can, we can, you can have, you can see and, and get um, the, you know, all the information on our website. Now, if you see today, we have um, some books and some shelves are a little bit in disarray. It looks like someone has, you know, a, a hurricane have come in, and but we know exactly where every book is. <laughs> uh, we are just getting ready for the renovations and this fall, so that we are just trying to um, organize ourselves. And with this, I wanted to introduce to you, or you know, Ryan Anderson. He's the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Policy Center, sorry. And he's going to introduce the speakers today, and Erica, and Mary Everstadt, um, and Ashley. Anyway, and he's a great um, friend of mine and great um, friend of the CAC. And thank you for being here, Ryan, as well. And please. Great. Thank you. Great. Um, thank you, Father Charles. Thank you, Mitch and uh, Rosemary, for doing all the legwork and setting this up. Um, and it's good to see uh, so many of you in person. It's good to see faces. Um, it reminds me of the importance of the body, uh, which will be a theme for tonight. Um, and as I was reading Erica's book, it really uh, brought to mind uh, Alistair McIntyre's 1999 book, Dependent Rational Animals, and the ways in which um, our culture, both historically and uh, today, denies various aspects of our dependency, our rationality, and our animality. And you can think of this historically, there were many cultures that denied the full rationality of women. Uh, the idea was that they were somehow defective men when it came to their intellects, and that's why they had second-class citizenship status. And to a certain extent, the original advocates for women's equality was really uh, um, engaging in advocacy on the rationality part, the equal rationality of women. The heirs of that movement, uh, today's radical feminists, some of the second wave feminists, seem to deny our animality, that there's a way of being embodied as female that is equally human, that the male way of being human is not kind of like the prototype with the female way of being human somehow defective. And so much of modern uh, feminism seems to be trying to uh, force women to live, to learn, to love, to work as if they were males. Um, so that would be a historic way denying the rationality, a contemporary way of some radical feminists denying the animality. And then it seems like everyone uh, is afraid of the dependency 
part, right? We celebrate Independence Day. We don't have a national holiday for Dependence Day. Maybe Thanksgiving is the closest we have where we celebrate a dependence on God, but not on brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, uh, family, community, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and to a certain extent, I think uh, one great virtue of Erica's book is that she's drawing all of those threads together, highlighting a sound anthropology would draw on both the rationality, the animality, and the uh, dependency. So to a certain extent, I think this is a worthy heir of a lifetime of uh, academic work by someone like Alistair McIntyre, someone like, um, uh, what's his name at Harvard, uh, Michael Sandel, and his concept of the unencumbered self versus the encumbered self. All of which is to say is that if you are following any of the contemporary 20th, first century Catholic intellectual debates, uh, Erica's book probably intersects with a half dozen different of those debates. Uh, debates about feminisms, the different waves of feminisms, lost feminisms and different proposals moving forwards. Debates about family policy, right? And there are wonkish debates about paid family leave and child tax credits. There's also the deep philosophical debate. Why do we value the family as family? And why is it a public good that deserves public support? Um, debates about abortion and the Supreme Court, sex discrimination and the Supreme Court, the jurisprudence sur surrounding uh, sex, privacy, equality, asymmetrical reproduction. This might uh, you know, be something of prominent importance in the coming months as the Supreme Court hears the Dobbs case. Debates about rights and duties and virtues and how those three concepts relate to each other and the reality here uh, that a sound understanding that rights exist to create space to fulfill our duties to practice the virtues. Right? You'll see all this in Erica's book. And then lastly, the debates about liberalism. Right? How should we think about uh, the American founding, the American legal project? Uh, what Erica does is draw on a historic thinker, a forgotten historical thinker, Mary Wollstonecraft, and then a contemporary uh, hero to many of ours, uh, Marianne Glendon, uh, to propose that there's a lost thread of feminism that we could uh, gainfully uh, recover and deploy today. Um, I say all of this uh, getting to brag about Erica. Uh, recently, I became the president of EPPC. Uh, I inherited Erica and this book. I can take no credit for it. Um, but it's, I think it's EPPC at its finest, right? This is the type of scholarship that we aspire uh, to produce. Um, and I'm just grateful that you know, I get to inherit a scholar like this. And so the credit goes uh, to Erica uh, and to Ed, the previous president. All right, so let me introduce the panelists, um, and then I'll get out of the way. Erica is going to speak first. She's going to speak about some of the main themes about the book, which she hoped to accomplish in writing the book. And then we'll hear um, short responses from Ashley McGuire and Mary Eberstadt. And then we'll have some time for moderated Q&A uh, with you, the audience. Uh, so as I mentioned, Erica is a fellow at EPPC, uh, a legal scholar specializing in equal protection jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, and Catholic social thought. Uh, her essays and uh, scholarly papers have appeared in publications such as the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, The Atlantic, First Things, CNN, National Review, National Affairs, The Claremont Review of Books, SCOTUS Blog, and Public Discourse. Uh, she and her husband live outside of Boston, and they are the happy parents of seven children. Ashley McGuire is a senior fellow with the Catholic Association. She's the author of Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. Uh, she writes and speaks widely about religious freedom, Catholicism, and women. She's appeared on CNN, CBS, Fox, PBS, EWTN, and the BBC. And her writings have appeared, among other places, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and USA Today. She lives right here in Washington, DC, with her husband and their three children. And then Mary Ebersat is the uh, hometown star here. She holds the Father Arnie Panula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Center. 
She's the author of at least a half dozen books, uh, all of which are groundbreaking, you know, advancing a new terrain in each of the various topics. Some of my favorites uh, include her most recent, Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics, uh, before that, How the West Really Lost God, uh, Adam and Eve After the Pill, and It's Dangerous to Believe. Uh, Amazon still sells all of her books, so uh, she also has that uh, going for her. Um, she and her husband live in Washington, D.C., and they're the proud parents of four children. Um, and lastly, uh, in addition to thanking Father Charles and the CIC for co-sponsoring this event, I want to uh, thank Carter Sneed and the De Nicola Center at uh, the University of Notre Dame. This book is published through Notre Dame Press, the De Nicola Book Series at Notre Dame, and Carter and his center is a co-sponsor of tonight's event. So with that, uh, please join me in welcoming Erica to the podium. Thank you, Ryan. That was very kind. Um, it's really wonderful to be here. Um, thanks for hosting, uh, and wonderful to meet you, Father, Father Charles. Um, and I just uh, am really thrilled to be here with these three incredible people up here with me um, who I uh, admire quite a bit. Um, so it's a, real, it's a real honor to have you all here. Um, so I want to um, share the story of how this idea uh, kind of grew within me and then speak a bit about the lost vision that I am seeking to reclaim. So though the book is an intellectual history, the history of the idea of women's rights and how the philosophical foundations for this idea have shifted profoundly over time, it has to be said that my own personal history of how and when I grew up really shaped the questions that inspired this work. So before I get into the ideas, I wanna share a bit of that history because I think it really illuminates the project as a whole. So as a middle-class white woman born in the mid-1970s, I profited where the 1970s feminist movement made its most obvious gains. By my late 20s, I competed athletically at the collegiate level, in part, I'm sure, to title, uh, thanks to Title IX, and I'd earned two graduate degrees. But the sexual revolution of that very same time period deeply impacted me too. My generation was the first to experience the divorce revolution of my parents' generation, propelled by 1970s feminists of their day, and it took a toll on me, just as it took a toll on many others my age. My mother was married and divorced three times by the time I reached my 19th birthday. And by 13 and 14, I was acting out in all the textbook ways with little to no relationship with my father um, after my parents' divorce when I was four. And so despite these kind of external accomplishments, I struggled internally with anxiety, depression, and even addiction in my teen years. Tragically, I also lost two close friends who are also children of divorce to suicide. So this tension between the gains of the 1970s feminist movement and the losses born of the sexual revolution of that very same time period is knit pretty deeply within me. Cultural and legal advances for women, to be sure. But it seems that in the meantime, uh, too many of us have lost an important cultural inheritance that had given priority to the longings for deep and abiding companionship and the duties, cares, and joys of family life and the life of the home. More poignant still, the gains and losses of this time period have not been equally distributed across the socioeconomic spectrum. Elite women, like me, have enjoyed the lion's share of the gains, while the poor and working classes have experienced the greatest losses. 
after all, by the grace of God and an excellent choice of a spouse, I've been one of the lucky ones, able to rebound from early losses to build a deeply satisfying marriage and family life and professional life of my own. But too many have not been so lucky. In our deeply divisive culture war politics today, the fault lines are often drawn about, around how one thinks about these intersecting feminist and sexual revolutions, revolutions that reshaped Western society in really <coughs> fundamental ways, transforming how almost all of us live, love, and work today. Those in favor of those transformations tend to line up on the left, and those opposed on the right. But really, the story is far more complicated than our politics seem to allow. And so it seemed to me that the time was ripe to really separate the wheat from the chaff, to tease out authentic advances for women while seeking to better understand where course corrections are most urgently needed. And so I thought where better to start than with the iconic figure of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whose work I'd spent quite a bit of time with for a Law Review article in which I sought to debunk her signature legal claim that abortion rights are necessary for women's equal citizenship. Ginsburg, of course, had shepherded through many of the legal advances for women in the early 1970s, rightly arguing, in my view, that women ought not be pigeonholed legally as homemakers, but rather should enjoy the opportunity to contribute to more public undertakings as well. But her ardent advocacy for abortion rights depended, it seemed to me, on an account of sex equality that took the male body as the norm. In a word, if men could walk away from an unexpected pregnancy, then sex equality required women to be free to do the same. And this male normativity, deep at the root of the abortion rights claim I had come to believe, was also complicit in the growing feminization of poverty. After all, what has become increasingly difficult to ignore and what I'd also explored in earlier work is the way in which the sexual revolution dramatically altered the circumstances in which poor and working class women bear and raise their children. Whereas sexual intercourse and potential motherhood remain unshakably connected a half century later, that's why women need abortion after all, the connection between sex and potential fatherhood, that connection that irresponsible men have always sought to avoid, has withered even further since the abortion-backed contraceptive revolution of the early 70s took hold. And it's become increasingly clear that this decoupling of sex from marriage and marriage from childbearing has unraveled in particular a working class culture of once stable marital bonds that children need and both mothers and fathers once relied upon for their success at home and at work and in all of life. Elite women, after all, are just as likely to be married today as they were in 1950, and they and their children are enjoying all the benefits of paternal support and care. But unmarried women who raise their children without the stable supports of their children's fathers are at a stark disadvantage on any number of measures. And so because I found so contradictory the twin pillars of Ginsburg's thought, anti-discrimination on the one hand and the right to abortion on the other, I wanted to get behind her view of rights per se, and to understand its philosophical foundations and where she might have gone wrong. And this was a really essential and knotty web to untangle because it seemed to me that this contradiction in, in Ginsburg's thought had really contributed to these tensions between the feminist and sexual revolutions I mentioned at the outset. 
thanks in large part to her trailblazing work, women have achieved remarkable gains educationally and professionally. But without a concomitant valuing of the essential caregiving work that both mothers and fathers undertake in the home. As I write in the book's introduction, reproductive choice may have offered women a means to accommodate their bodies to fit the ideal unencumbered male worker with whom they seek to compete in the workplace. But it has delayed dramatically the workplace's acknowledgement of the essential cultural reality that most working persons are or ought to be deeply encumbered by their obligations to their families and to the dependent and vulnerable at large. And so the project really began as a comparison between the rights theories of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Mary Ann Glendon. Glendon's now classic book, Rights Talk, was not only significantly responsible for convincing me as a 20-year-old pro-choicer of the merits of the pro-life position. Her thoroughgoing communitarian or dignitarian account also provided, it seemed to me, the single best corrective to Ginsburg's view. Ginsburg hailed, first and foremost, autonomy, and thus the need for women to imitate the unencumbered male to achieve equal status, or a kind of market equality. But Glendon argued that both law and culture ought to respect and support human dependency, the maternal and paternal duties that dependency demands, and the familial and cultural structures that have always taken up the task of forming persons to embrace responsibly their duties of care. Otherwise, as Glendon so often reminds us in her work, we run the risk of leaving women, especially poor women, with their legal autonomy and nothing else. So the vision of the book was initially what is now the last four chapters. But in a consequential moment early on, actually after having a conversation with Mary Everstadt out at BYU, which I'm sure she doesn't recall, but perhaps, I realized that no one really cares that Erica Bakiaki thinks that Glendon was ultimately right and Ginsburg was ultimately wrong. <laughs> so I had to dig deeper. And what I did not fully realize until I began doing so was that the earliest women's rights advocates in our country thought about rights very differently than Ginsburg did. I knew the early women's rights advocates rejected abortion as a legitimate response to the reproductive asymmetries between men and women. Every pro-life feminist knows that. But I had not understood the full philosophical coherence of their view and from whence it came until digging deeply into research for this book. And so as I read and reread, uh, in some cases, the earliest arguments for women's rights, having first encountered some of them as a women's studies student more than 25 years ago, I began to see a thread emerge from English philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Woman in 1792, up through our own country's earliest women's rights advocates who read and expressly followed Wollstonecraft to someone like Glendon whose work I argue in the book can be understood as the authentic completion of Wollstonecraft's own dignitarian vision. And then on the other side, though, this simplifies things a little bit, the line seemed clearly to stretch from more liberal, individualistic, and abstract accounts of rights and equality like those of John Locke and John Stuart Mill, and on to 1970s feminists like Ginsburg. And so the early foundational parts of the book really began to unfold from there. So basically, the book asks you to imagine a counterfactual, how women's rights would have looked, how our society would have progressed differently had we followed Wollstonecraft's vision of rights instead. But it also suggests building on Glendon's work and that of Jean Belfelstein and Elizabeth Fox Genovese, 
that that vision is a far, far better one for us today, 200 years after Wollstonecraft wrote. So let me now spend a few minutes articulating that vision, and then I'm eager to hear from our esteemed panelists. So even a really cursory reading of uh, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman reveals with some irony, perhaps, that Wollstonecraft was not chiefly concerned about rights at all. She, rather, she was concerned most especially with the advance of moral and intellectual virtue <coughs> in both persons and societies. An advance she believed would be best realized where our politics and laws shaped around the common human dignity of each person. Persons are equal in dignity, thought Wollstonecraft, because each one, regardless of sex, race, or social status, is a rational creature capable of moral development. Of, as she writes, quote, rising in excellence by the exercise of the powers implanted for that purpose, end quote. The purpose of both law and government, then, is to encourage progress and virtue for each and every person, whether rich or poor, man or woman, whatever his or her starting point. Following the ancients here, she believed that human beings' attainment of virtue, not their attainment of property, wealth, or status, would guarantee personal, familial, and societal happiness. As she wrote most famously, society can only be happy and free in proportion as it is virtuous. And so Wollstonecraft, I think, offers a unique synthesis of ancient wisdom and modern political insight, correcting errors she saw among philosophers of her day and proposing a program that in its fullness remains yet untried today. So let me drill down a bit more into her moral vision in order to get to her rationale for rights. What does it mean to be virtuous, according to Wollstonecraft? Well, in a word, to imitate God through contemplation of the truth and benevolence toward others. Goodness, she says, has but one eternal standard, God, and thus all his creatures, regardless of sex or social status, are responsible to that single standard. But more concretely, virtue is, for Wollstonecraft, cultivated in the daily obligations of life, obligations which spring forth from our given nature as rational, moral, and familial beings, duties to self, to develop one's rational faculties and to master one's appetites, duties to family, to care for one's dependent children, spouse, and elderly parents, duties to fellow creatures, work and to respect the dignity of all, and duties to God, to pursue truth and goodness and to trust in his providential designs. And so our concrete day-to-day -day responsibilities to others are the first reality. Rights for Wollstonecraft are born of and enable us to fulfill those responsibilities. Thus, for instance, it would be philosophically untenable to claim that a mother could enjoy a right to end the life of her unburned child. Rather, she enjoyed rights to better discharge the special duties of care she already owed to that child. Wollstonecraft's defense of rights was thus inspired by an ancient view of the human person, one that exalted the common human pursuit of wisdom and virtue above all else. And she, she saw how these noble human ends, wisdom and virtue, are achieved concretely in the good that is to be done each day. But, thought Wollstonecraft, and again here she follows the ancients, without one's reason properly directing the passions toward virtue, 
One's animal instincts would, quote, run wild, rendering a person impulsive, selfish, even brutal. Not governing the passions the way one should, he or she becomes a slave to those passions, and thus not independent and free. Indeed, a freedom bereft of wisdom and virtue would reduce men to beasts. And this was especially true in intimate relations between men and women. The wellspring of the domestic affection she recognized as the very source of every public virtue. Chastity was then not to be abandoned in the pursuit of equality between the sexes, nor was this virtue specially required of women, as was the convention of the day. Rather, it was men who, in pursuing self-serving indulgence, without habitual respect for women or regard for the noble purposes of sex and the, share, and the goods of shared domestic life, had too often failed to treat women with the dignity they deserved. Women, for their part, had too often acquiesced fashioning themselves more pleasing to the eyes than strong in the mind. Indeed, the 18th century philosopher identifies want of chastity in men as the single most consequential offense against women. And so, Wollstonecraft's radical, but in recent decades, totally unsung vision of sexual integrity for both sexes with a view toward virtuous relationships of mutual trust and collaboration poses, it seems to me, an especially striking challenge to a modern feminism shaped by a very different kind of sexual revolution. After all, Wollstonecraft believed that true domestic affections, man for woman and woman for man, could channel sexual energies away from the pursuit of pleasure to something that could transform society itself. A man's love for his wife and children could expand his heart and free him from narrow self-regard, quote, the tenderness which, which a man will feel for the mother of his children is an excellent substitute for the ardor of unsatisfied passion. Cold would be the heart of a husband were he not rendered unnatural by early debauchery, who did not feel more delight at seeing his child suckled by its mother than the most artful wanton tricks could ever raise, end quote. Indeed, engaged in attentive fatherhood, was the very best means to direct men's desires profitably by bringing them into the life of shared domesticity. And given men's power and influence in society, such an orientation would yield benefits well beyond the good of his wife and children. Listen to how she contrasts the ill effects of the libertine man with the noble citizenship of the husband and father. Quote, from the lax morals and depraved affections of the libertine, what results? A finical man of taste who is only anxious to secure his own private gratifications and to maintain his rank in society. But the character of a husband and a father forms the citizen imperceptibly, producing a sober manliness of thought and orderly behavior." End quote. The benefits of a rich domestic life for society were manifold. Quote, if you wish to make good citizens, you must first exercise the affections of a son and a brother. This is the only way to expand the heart. For public affections, as well as public virtue, must ever grow out of private character, end quote. By trading the libertine lifestyle for that first domestic affection, men and women could refine their humanity and thereby transform the world. Wollstonecraft therefore praised marriage in theory, but not as legally instituted and practiced in her time. 
It was the very potential she saw in the institution that caused her scathing critique. Indeed, marriage was so essential to the domestic affections that Wollstonecraft regarded as the primary instruments of both personal and societal happiness, that the moral corruption of the institution was, quote, more universally injurious to morality than all the other vices of mankind collectively considered, end quote. But a marital relationship between equals, in which each was perfected by the other through their growth in the virtue of friendship, had great potential. And because Wollstonecraft viewed the affectionate inculcation of virtue in children to be the among, among the most essential of all social duties, she regarded motherhood and fatherhood to be the very highest of all callings. So what happened to this noble and edifying vision? What went wrong? Well, <laughs> that's a long story, but I'll give it my best here in a couple minutes. Her thought received Earl Easy Passage in the newly formed United States. One of her books on the French Revolution was actually read twice by Vice President John Adams. And Abigail Adams con considered herself a pupil of Wollstonecraft. And as I mentioned earlier, she profoundly influenced the earliest American women's rights advocates um, in the next century. At the first women's rights convention at Seneca Falls in 1848, sex equality was defended on the basis of, quote, the identity of the race and capabilities and responsibilities. And as Wollstonecraft had argued, both men and women were to be held responsible to a single moral standard. One resolution of the convention at Seneca Falls responding to the perennial injustice of the sexual double standard read, quote, that the same amount of virtue, delicacy, and refinement of behavior that is required of women in the social state should also be required of man. And the same transgressions be visited with equal severity on both man and woman." End quote. But as the women's rights movement wore on, some began to trade Wollstonecraft's <coughs> prioritization of the virtuous fulfillment of familial and social obligations, the foundation of her argument for civil and political rights for Locke's more individualistic and abstract conception. Likewise, in the decades following the publication of John Stuart Mill's Subjection of Women in 1869, liberty was transformed from a means to virtuously fulfill our responsibilities to an essential human capacity with no particular goal or end. In Mill's telling, elites were not so much to direct their gifts toward the common good as Wollstonecraft thought, but rather to engage creatively in experiments in living, regardless of the downstream effects on the more disadvantaged. And, well, both Locke and Mill really eclipsed Wollstonecraft's influence beginning in the late 19th century, and especially as we get to the mid-20th. Given the importance Wollstonecraft gave to the natural duties of the family, it's really unsurprising that she would dissent from the state of nature theorists, and she does this especially with Rousseau, but with others too, in favor of an older account of human nature. Rousseau's description of natural man, for instance, is, is at quite a distance from Wollstonecraft's view of the givenness of familial obligations. In Rousseau's second discourse, for instance, we're told that natural man, quote, bedded down at random and often for one night according to chance encounters, opportunity, and desire, leaving children whom the father, quote, did not even recognize to be cared for solely, we assume, by their mothers, or an orphanage, I suppose. And then when civil society came into being, for Rousseau and the other state of nature theorists, it's of course only male individuals who are counted as full liberal citizens. 
Women disappear into the newly erected private sphere. Men's liberal citizenship depends upon women's traditional work of nurture and care, but simultaneously renders them as dependent as their children, just the contrary of the autonomy necessary for full liberal citizenship. It's no surprise, really, then, that the modern theories of women's rights built upon this liberal edifice would end up placing the putative right to abortion at their very center. For if participation in public life and in market work requires one to be unencumbered by natural obligations and beholden only to those voluntarily chosen, unexpected pregnancy and time-consuming caregiving find no place in them. Indeed, Hobbes's particular view of the state of nature, characterized by radically autonomous and self-interested male and female individuals, naturally equal, but only in their capacity to engage in a war of all against all, is not so dissimilar from the rat race of late capitalist societies. Women with infants are at an obvious disadvantage against those without such caregiving responsibilities, as in, mythical, as in Hobbes's mythical world, they may feel the need to discard them just to survive. But of course, reality is much closer to Wollstonecraft's view. We are not, first and foremost, autonomous beings with rights. Rather, we are most fundamentally beings in relation to and dependent upon God. And that most fundamental relation connects us all through the interchange of interweaving obligations and affections which move outward from our domestic obligations, affections, to our uh, more public ones. So daughter, wife, mother, citizen, but also son, husband, father, citizen. Relationality is not only for women. And this basic starting point, of course, has an impact for how we think about the rights of women. Follow Hobbes, Locke, and Mill, and you get women's rights advocates seeking to make women more like mythical autonomous men follow Wollstonecraft, and you can begin to reimagine rights born of the natural duties we owe to one another. Thank you. Thank you, Erica. First, a note to Ryan Anderson, the fact that Amazon is selling my books is proof that Amazon is not reading my books. <laughs> <laughs> Proving again that Amazon takes men more seriously than women. <laughs> um, I'd like to start tonight uh, with a, a story that comes to mind, uh, that came to mind more than once as I was reading Erica's book. Uh, it's a story about herd behavior among intellectuals and how that herd behavior is not foreordained and can change. So I'd like to go back a, a couple of decades in time for reasons that will become clear at the end. Before the collapse of communism <clears throat> was ushered in by the Velvet Revolutions, academic and other polite society in the United States shared a near consensus about the Soviet Union. It was that communism was more benign than detractors in the West seemed to think that Western nations were riddled with problems of their own, and that the biggest obstacle to social peace was not communism, but rather anti-communism. And this is what everybody in polite society believed. This was what students on elite campuses were taught. 
So it's all the more remarkable to realize in retrospect the moment at which that consensus on the left began to crack. It was seven years before the fall of the Berlin Wall. On February 6, 1982, at a town hall where many leftists had gathered to protest the imposition of martial law in Poland. <clears throat> to the shock of almost everybody there, Susan Sontag, the reigning grand dame of the left, took the opportunity to excoriate her own side. Famously, she declared that communism was fascism with a human face, and she threw down this challenge. She said, imagine, if you will, someone who read only the Reader's Digest between 1950 and 1970, and someone in the same period who read only The Nation or The New Statesman. Which reader would have been better informed about the realities? The answer, I think, should give us pause. Can it be that our enemies were right? This was a clear instance of secular prophecy. Immediately after the Velvet Revolutions, almost none of communism's defenders in the academy or anywhere else dared to raise their hands. It was an astonishing turnaround brought about by the accumulation of evidence, evidence that changed the mind of one prominent intellectual and then many more. So I thought of this episode often when reading Erica's remarkable and remarkably important new book. Someday, the Western intelligentsia will have to reckon with another large subject, the sexual revolution. And when that happens, the rights of women will, in retrospect, have been a landmark along the way to that reconsideration. This is true for at least three reasons. <clears throat> First, because the wrong turn taken by feminism has not only shortchanged women and children and empowered predatory men, as Erica argues forcefully and convincingly, it has also made many women miserable. Women, that is, who are outside our counterculture. Women who have bought into the fictions that men and women, or men and children, are their natural enemies that success in the paid marketplace is the definition of success, period, and that the way to be a flourishing woman is to become more like a man. A great many women today, especially after Me Too, are openly asking why they aren't flourishing in the world that feminism has made. The rights of women, which explains their intuitions and validates their misgivings, amounts to a manifesto for them in particular. Second, this book will also change minds for another reason. It is the definitive demolition of the going model of feminism. According to that model, in the unforgettable phrase of my fellow panelist, Ashley McGuire, women are inevitably recast not as women, but as failed men, failed men. In the dominant mode of Western feminism today, everything intrinsic to women makes women a problem. Above all, on this model, female fertility is the biggest inconvenience of all, one demanding to be managed by industrial interventions that further burden women, chemical and mechanical contraception with the violent denouement of abortion as a backstop. So against this current thinking, 
that fails to honor women, fails to protect them, and fails to give them their due as co-creators of life itself, Bakayoki resurrects an incomparably more sane and humane tradition of feminist thinking. Other writers have worked in this vein before, but none to my knowledge have succeeded so brilliantly in this recreation of lost thought. Erica not only recovers this dignified past, but as well by using it as a foil to the feminism of the present, her book shows how thin and punitive this other regimen has become. Third, among other virtues, the book offers a valuable lesson about public argument and how to engage in it for the win. Between the lines, it is a spirited rebuke <clears throat> to one of the intellectual deficiencies of our age, historicism. Contrary to what progressives argue, history is not foreordained, including intellectual history. The rights of women shows clearly that feminism took a wrong turn following the feminist mystique in particular. And the book shows just as clearly that there is a path back to a more magnanimous feminism, one based on a true anthropology of womanhood, rather than the crabbed and diminished anthropology that today's feminists have mistakenly embraced. It could not be more fitting than to celebrate the appearance of this countercultural book here at the CIC, where a powerful, powerful counterculture has been growing up for a long time now. The day is coming when people on the left will stand and say of the sexual revolution what Susan Sontag said of communism, that their adversaries were right all along. And when that first leader on the other side steps up, breaks ranks, and comes over, the rest of us will welcome her with open arms. And maybe even, it's to be hoped, a Bakioki Award named to honor the author of this game-changing book. Thank you. So I finished reading one of the chapters of Erica's book on a plane and decided to take a break and picked up a People magazine. And the article that I read was about Britney Spears's conservativeship fight. But specifically what caught my attention was her fight to have her IUD removed. And I was struck by the direct connection between Erica's book and the thinking of Mary Wollenstonecraft and how ahead of her time she was in seeing the way that what we now call sort of late-stage capitalism, the effects that it would have on women. Um, I have a friend who we repeatedly text each other articles that we just uh, supplement with the phrase late-stage capitalism and they have to do with um, the effects that it's having specifically on women um, in the name of feminism. And I wanted to read two of the last um, titles and a couple of clips from them, again, to show how monumentally important Erica's book is, um, especially for young women today who are trying to navigate this world. Uh, the first one was from The Atlantic. It was entitled, No One Has to Get Their Period Anymore. And this is a quote from a mother in the book. She said, without periods, she says about her daughter, 
They won't miss two days of school or work each month or get cramps during the SAT or swim meets or deal with any of the other related stresses. I want them to be competitive against those who don't have uteruses. The second was an Apple News article uh, entitled, To Save Money on Surrogacy Costs, More Parents Are Aiming for Twiblings. And this is a quote from a woman who um, opted for this thing called twiblings. It is a lot easier for me to want to be home and get through those little baby mushy years if they're really close in age. If I did the standard two years apart, then I'm going to be out of work for about four years before I could really get back into the industry. That was a very, very big financial thing for me in making this decision. Um, so I just give you those as two examples of actual serious articles that are written today um, that exemplify just how serious things have become when it comes to late stage capitalism and feminism. And I, I've been um, personally struggling with the idea of feminism, which in my opinion is, is something that's really in sort of a free fall, like we're in this sort of twilight years of feminism and struggling to separate out what I think of the different waves. I think, you know, we call them the first wave and the second wave. And I think Erica's book does a really good example of really delineating the fact that the first wave of feminism was much more of a, a civil rights struggle. And, and that the second wave really has almost actually nothing in common um, and works in many respects directly against the thinking and the work of the women in the first wave. And wondering whether, the question I keep asking myself is, are we really sort of experiencing, especially with what's going on with, the, with transgenderism, this sort of final frontier of the second wave of feminism? Are they actually accomplishing what they set out to do in eradicating and abolishing the differences between the sexes? Or is second wave feminism actually devouring itself and collapsing, in which case I think it's entirely plausible that we're very close to experiencing a sort of vacuum of thinking in terms of what fills its place. Um, and again, to give a sort of um, blunt example, I just got off the phone with somebody today who um, enlightened me on the phrase turf, trans, what is it? trans-exclusionary radical feminist and apparently they've so enraged um, the transgender movement that it elicited a hashtag called punch a turf in the throat. Um, so those are the kinds of moments when I think actually it's really the second um, that we are watching what we call feminism collapse in which case I think it's absolutely essential um, that thinkers like Erica Bakayoki stand at the ready with works like this that revive what is good and redeemable from the be very beginnings of thinking about um, the rights of women to fill that, to fill that void. Um, and then I just wanted to offer three brief reflections that struck me about the book. I mean, I've been very influenced by Erica's thinking about um, the idea, as, as Mary mentioned, that women today are conditioned to fill a, a male norm and reject what is essential about themselves. But I was also struck by Mary Wollstonecraft's thinking, um, or the way she talked about work and domestic work. Um, I think that's really important and I think that that's something that's happening right now. Um, and I was very struck, I wanna say it was almost 10 years ago by a quote that Leon Cass gave at, American, at an American Enterprise Institute dinner 
where he said, we human beings are at work not only when we are occupationally working, we are also deeply at work in the activities of love and friendship, and especially when we are actively engaged in family life, the domain of private life in which Americans find the most meaning. And I've, that's really been shaping my thinking for the last 10 years, but reading Erica's book, I was struck by the fact that really it was Mary Wollstonecraft who, who thought it and said it first. Um, the second is, is the way she thinks about rights, and I think the need for Americans especially to rethink rights in terms of the family, and I was, I was struck in your book by um, the way you talked about the medieval era as a time when actually it was arguable that women had more rights, um, both within the domestic sphere and the civil sphere in the sense that both the occupational work and the family work was very much shared, and it was actually sort of this enlightenment departure with the emphasis on individualism that led to a sort of regression of women's rights. And then I think when you bring on um, capitalism and now what my friends and I call late-stage capitalism, uh, that regression is accelerating at a sort of alarming pace. Um, and then finally, I just wanted to draw the connection and commend to you the book of my fellow panelist, Mary Eberstadt. And actually, before I knew we would all be doing this panel together, I actually wrote in the margins of a page, Mary Eberstadt, um, because I was also struck by Wollstonecraft's um, emphasis on the importance of women especially, um, but the family in raising citizens of virtue. She said, I have endeavored to show that private duties are never properly fulfilled unless the understanding enlarges the heart, and that public virtue is only an aggregate of private. And then Erica wrote that well-intentioned human beings make for a well-ordered well society. And that reminded me very much of Mary Everstadt's book, Primal Screams, which um, I talk about constantly at home um, with my husband. But it's a wonderful book that, you know, I think as people today are trying to understand um, all of the social upheaval and the turmoil that we're experiencing, just how you know, we can't think of that as separate from the issue of women's rights, um, and that again, it's, it's, it's a redeeming, a proper understanding of women's rights that will restore um, harmony in the home, which is the only antidote to the social upheaval that we're experiencing today. So uh, with that, I thank you and was very honored to speak here today on the heels of Erica and Mary. So thank you very much.